Hollywood has enjoyed two golden ages. The first from the late 1930s through to the late 40s arose out of an industry that enjoyed a virtual monopoly on the public's entertainment dollar. The studios were able to streamline that success because the audience was literally captive. The public had precious little else for mass amusement. And so filmmakers were able to deliver great productions such as The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Wizard of Oz, The Philadelphia Story, Citizen Kane, Mrs. Miniver, Casablanca, Meet Me in St. Louis, Mildred Pierce, The Best Years of Our Lives, and Miracle on 34th Street. But by the end of the 40s, that confidence began to give way to a long-term crisis. Hollywood's virtually built-in audience began to stay at home to watch television. As ticket sales dropped and profits waned, the studios wondered how it could get its audience back. Technicolor epics filmed in the Todd AO widescreen process failed to do the trick, and by the 60s, society had begun to fracture in a way not seen since the Civil War. The scrapping of the Hayes Code was an expression of that division. The studios could no longer keep track of its market because its model was no longer working. And it was that crisis that ushered in Hollywood's second golden age. Not knowing where its audience had gone, the studios took chances and put their money on projects they did not necessarily understand. And from that risk-necessary mindset came such innovative classics as Bonnie and Clyde, 2001, Easy Rider, MASH, THX 1138, Deliverance, Badlands, A Woman Under the Influence, Dog Day Afternoon and Taxi Driver. It was a time of the Hollywood auteur, Robert Altman, Terence Malick, Martin Scorsese, and each of them was granted greater artistic license. All golden ages come to an end, succumbing either to excess or laziness. But in the case of Hollywood's second golden age, it was the success of a different type of film that resulted in the end of the era. It was George Lucas who rediscovered the family audience with his fantasy, Star Wars. Star Trek, Superman and Flash Gordon soon followed. And it was against that tide of the returning conservatism that Warren Beatty embarked on making a film about the origins of American communism. What does a capitalist do? Let me ask you that, Mike. Huh? Tell me. I mean, what does he make besides money? I don't know what he makes. The workers do all the work, don't they? Well, what if they got organized? I mean, all the workers, not just the plumbers and the carpenters and the goddamn cigar makers, but all of them, all over the world, not in just one country or another. Give him a beer, will you? Released on December the 4th, 1981, Beatty had begun planning his film from as far back as the mid-1960s. It was then that he had first come across the tumultuous lives of John Reed and Louise Bryant. Reed was a Harvard graduate who gravitated to the Bohemian set in Greenwich Village, where he fell in love with Bryant, a divorcee from San Francisco. Bryant aspired to be a writer, but although it was she who was the more polished of the two, it was Reed whose reputation flourished as he covered the Mexican Revolution and then the Great War in Europe. Married in 1916, Reed and Bryant then went to Russia where they witnessed the Bolshevik Revolution of October 1917. Returning to America, Reed published Ten Days That Shook the World, before going back to Russia to secure recognition for the Communist Party of America, which he had just helped set up. But greeting Reed, the Supreme Soviet had other plans for him, and he was sent out as a propagandist to Baku in Azerbaijan. The lengthy mission there affected his health badly, and returning to Moscow, he was diagnosed with typhus, and it was there, on October the 17th, 1920, that Reed died, holding Brian's hand. He was 32 years old. Your life, you haven't resolved what your life is that it is. 
You see yourself as an artist and at the same time as a revolutionary, as a lover to your wife, but also as a spokesman for the American Zenobia, party. Zenobia, you don't think a man can be an individual and be true to the collective, or speak for his own country and the international at the same time, or love his wife and still be faithful to the revolution. You don't have a self to give. Would you ever be willing to give yourself to this when revolution? When you separate you? a man from what he loves the most, what you do is purge what's unique in him. And when you purge what's unique in him, you purge dissent. Camaraderie. And when you purge dissent, you kill the revolution. Revolution is dissent. Camaraderie. You don't rewrite what I write. No. Warren Beatty was 30 years old when he produced and starred in Bonnie and Clyde, the gangster picture that kick-started Hollywood's second golden age. And Beatty quickly parlayed that success into power. Bonnie and Clyde led to the revisionist western McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Miller begat the political satire Shampoo, and Shampoo begat the romantic comedy Heaven Can Wait, which, on the surface at least, appeared a trifle, but in actual fact, served as the launchpad for Beatty to fondly write, produce, direct and star in his own films. Heaven Can Wait earned nine Oscar nominations, four of them for Beatty, and although on the night it received just one statuette, the money it earned at the box office $81 million, which adjusted to inflation is about $305 million, meant that Beatty was at last in a position to get his dream project made. From as early as the mid-1970s, he'd been interviewing contemporaries of Reed and Bryant, getting their accounts on film before they passed away. And when Beatty felt he had enough testimonies, he set about writing the script, engaging the talent and knowledge of revered Marx's playwright Trevor Griffiths. The two men soon grew to loathe one another, but that did not stop them from spending close to five months holed up in a New York hotel room, labouring, arguing and brawling over every line of dialogue. The only thing was that when Beatty finally went to Paramount Pictures and said he needed $25 million to make the film, the head of the studio, Charlie Bluthorn, begged him to shelve the entire thing. Take the $25 million, implored Bluthorn. Go to Mexico, keep $24 million for yourself Spend one million on a picture, any picture. Please, just don't make this one. I'd like to know if the Socialist Party is going to fight conscription or not. That's what I'd like to know. Delegate, identify himself. I am not a delegate, Mr. Chairman. My name is John Reed. I write for the magazine The Masses, and I want to know if the Socialist Party is going to organize demonstrations. I'm sorry, Mr. Reed. You have no credentials here. Now, this floor is reserved for delegates. For a Hollywood film, and one starring some of Hollywood's biggest stars of the time, Beatty. Diane Keaton, Jack Nicholson and Gene Hackman, it opens in a highly unconventional manner. The script, which you can read online, begins by announcing The film is woven together by old narrators. They are people in their late 80s and 90s, talking today about the past. These old faces will give us historical information and help to convey the passage of time. I'd forgotten all about them. Were there socialists? I guess there must have been. But I don't think they were of any importance. I don't remember them at all. I don't know what the outside world thought of them. But uh, they were a couple. I mean, you always spoke of Louise Bryant and Jack Reed. Now, my idea about Jack Reed is uh, probably different from most, but I knew him well. I knew he was a man of strong views. I knew he was independent. And I have an idea, I may be wrong in this, that his wife was a communist. which means that for the film's first five minutes, count them, 
we get a succession of unfamiliar faces offering up different opinions on John Reed. The opinions differ and that discrepancy prepares us for a character who is a paradox. At Harvard, Reed was considered a liberal, a radical and an anarchist. But no matter what he was, he was a wealthy American who became a communist and lies buried in the walls of the Kremlin. While the technique is different to the one used by Orson Welles in Citizen Kane, Beatty's tactic does nonetheless result in us glimpsing Reed from various vantage points, none of which offer the same impression of the man. And as Reed's story unfolds, as he meets Bryant and they argue and fight and fall in love, Beatty cuts back to the various faces who fill us in more and more about the other historical figures who appear in the story, Max Eastman, Eugene O'Neill and Emma Goldman. Capitalists can take this country into war anytime they Wait. damn well please. The only impact you can make is in the streets. Yes, of course, you can yes, make but, some in, but... But, don't, but don't you think, Emma, that if Debs gets a lot of votes, it'll strengthen that impact? No, I don't. I think voting is the opium of the masses in this country. Every four years you're dead in the pain. Despite securing such an enormous budget, convening such a celebrated cast and deploying such an experienced crew, the production was a mess. Filming began in London before branching out to Finland, Spain, Sweden, then back across to New York and California. The truth was that Beatty was never satisfied with the script, so he called in no lesser talents than the Oscar-winning Robert Town and the Oscar-nominated Elaine May to do uncredited polishes. And even then, Beatty was not satisfied, pushing his cast to take after take after take, to the point that Jack Nicholson all but broke down in tears, begging his director for direction. What do you want me to do? Tell me and I'll do it. But Beatty didn't want to tell his actors what to do. He wanted them to find the performance. When reports got back to the studio, the alarm bell sounded that the budget had ballooned from 25 to 30 to 35 million, and with no end in sight. In total, photography took almost a year, with Beatty taking brief breaks during which he would retreat to New York to review what he had shot. He felt he had to do so because he was burning through film stock at a rate unseen on any other picture. Beatty never called cut at the end of a take, instead insisting on leaving the cameras running and running and running until the film ran out. It meant that cameras were constantly rolling, which caused them to overheat and for their motors to burn out. That happened three times on three separate cameras. All told, Beatty shot over 3 million feet of film, which, if you were to watch it without a break, would take you two and a half weeks. Clearly, Beatty was obsessed, but why did he appear to be so undisciplined? The answer perhaps lies in a line from a scene late in the film, where Reed says to the chairman of the Soviet Executive Committee, Grigory Zinoviev, that he wants to return home to the United States. Comrade Reed, you can always go back to your private responsibilities. So can I. You can never, never come back to this moment in history. Beatty viewed the actual filming in the same way. This is the time and this is the place. And he felt he had to exploit the occasion to the absolute limit. Otherwise, what was the point? But Beatty's blind determination paid off. The film's release was met with critical acclaim. And if audiences were wary of a three-hour epic about communists, it received a staggering 12 Oscar nominations, winning three, one for Beatty as director.
There are four standouts in Reds. For a story about the origins of American communism, the script really only flirts with the ideology, focusing instead on the personal, professional, loves and fights of the figures involved. Reed and Bryant, Bryant and O'Neill, Reed and Goldman, Goldman and Bryant, Reed and Zinoviev. And within the outstanding cast, the standouts are clearly Diane Keaton as Louise Bryant, Jerzy Kaczynski as Zinoviev, and in an Oscar-winning portrayal of Emma Goldman, Maureen Stapleton. If Louise were to come here, she'd have to leave the United States illegally, then live in exile with you and never go home again. All for the sake of a revolution she was never any part of. Why should she? You chose the life of a revolutionary. She didn't. Your cables only focus the Justice Department's attention on her. And the most seditious thing they can accuse her of is being your wife. Leave her alone. Let her choose her own future. The film's other standouts? Editing. The legendary Dee Dee Allen managed, with the help of 65 assistants, of not just winnowing 340-odd hours of footage down to three hours of wordy drama, but also finding the cadences for each performance. The final standout is a paradox. The man behind Beatty's repeatedly burned-out camera was none other than Italian maestro Vittorio Storaro. Storaro had just won an Oscar for lensing Francis Ford Coppola's monumental Apocalypse Now, and before that had delivered the beauteous light and luxurious camera movements for three successive Bernardo Bertolucci films. The Conformist, Last Tango in Paris and Novo Cento. Yet, while Storaro's work on Reds rightly won him his second Oscar, why Beatty hired him and then failed to fully utilise his gifts proved to be a missed opportunity. Reds focuses on the time when communism not only seized Russia, but also threatened to expand internationally. As such, Reds covers one of the most tumultuous times in modern history. And yet the camera remains all but inert. If only Beatty had allowed Storaro to move the camera, he would have moved us through history. Instead, we have a visual thesis utterly at odds with its subject. Do you believe in God? I beg your pardon? It's a simple question, Miss Brown. Now, do you want me to repeat it? I'm sorry, for a moment I thought you asked me if I believe there's a God. That is precisely what I asked. I see. Well, I have no way of knowing. Are you a Christian? I was christened in the Catholic Church. Well, are you a Christian now? I suppose I am. Do you believe in our Lord Jesus Christ? I believe in the teachings of Christ. Am I being tried for witchcraft? Initially budgeted at $25 million, the film's final cost was more than double. But despite the reviews, the awards, and an enormous promotional push, Reds never caught fire with audiences and managed to take just over $40 million at the US box office. The biggest hit that year was another Paramount picture, Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark, which took in over four times Reds' number. But here's the thing. Even if Paramount hadn't backed Spielberg, it still wouldn't have lost a dime on Reds. Paramount's president, Charlie Bluthorn, always frightened by a film about communists, had taken measures to protect the studio by tax sheltering the entire picture with London's Barclays Bank putting together a currency deal that hedged British sterling against US dollars. From those transactions, before Reds even opened, the studio had made a profit. 
Oh, the wonders of capitalism.